So let's turn to 2 Peter, shall we? 2 Peter, chapter 2. We're going to cover one and a half verses today. So that's more than one verse and less than two. One and a half. Verses 9 through 10a. The first half of verse 10. We begin in verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. And of course, this chapter began with Peter wanting to bring out the point that in the past there were false prophets, false teachers, and that there are going to be. this In Old Testament times, there were false prophets and false teachers who led the people of God astray. Now we're under the new covenant, but Peter wanted us to know that this will happen under the new covenant as well. There will be false teachers, false prophets who will attempt to, and in some cases lead people astray. And he also wanted us to know that God will be dealing with those people. There will be judgment for them. So it would be a warning for those who might be tempted to engage in false teaching, to not go there and a warning to the true believers to avoid being led astray by these false teachers. There will be punishment for them. And he goes back through a series of previous judgments. We've talked about Noah's flood, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the chaining of the fallen angels who kept not their first estate, but came down, Genesis 6, cohabitated with human women, and their offspring were the Nephilim, the giants, the mighty men of old. Not mighty men of old in a good sense, but in a very evil way. So let's pick it up here in verse 9. Let's pray. Father, we ask your blessing upon this time in your word. We pray that you would once again uh, feed your sheep. Teach us, feed us, lead us. And may we continue, Lord, our spiritual growth and development, which we recognize is a lifetime pursuit. Bless this time of study in your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This sentence starts with the word then. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. It relates back to verses 4 through 7. Again, the examples. If God did not spare the angels and did not spare the ancient world and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction and delivered righteous Lot. Now there's a contrast there. We have three points of judgment and then an example of God delivering righteous Lot. And we've talked about righteous Lot already in the past few weeks. He wasn't perfect. Why was Lot called righteous? In fact, if you really get into it and study the life of Lot, it would not be altogether inappropriate to use the word flake when describing Lot. But then again, that might fit many of us in this room today. Boy, is he flaky. Boy, is she flaky. Lot was flaky. Why was he righteous? Because he put his faith in the living God. Just as Abraham was counted righteous because of his faith, we know Abraham wasn't perfect either. And that's one of the things I love about the Bible. God teaches us about all the great men and women of faith that have gone before us. But he doesn't hide their flaws, does he? We know some pretty nasty things about King David, don't we? Adultery, murder, and yet he's called a man after God's own heart. What does that tell you? That God's flaky? No. But it tells you he's loving and gracious and merciful and forgiving, and there's no sin he will not forgive if we are truly repentant and we confess it to him. And God uses imperfect people because those are the only kind that are available. If there were some perfect ones available, I'm sure he would use them. The only perfect man to ever walk the earth was and is Jesus Christ. So if, we have an if, and that was the title of a couple of previous messages. We have an if here, if God did not spare the angels, if he did not spare the ancient world, and he turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, and 
delivered righteous Lot. If all these things did happen, and they did, here's the next part. This is what's really important here. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. In other words, our God is not a God who only knows how to punish those who deserve punishment. He also knows how to protect and preserve those who do not. Who are those who do not deserve punishment? Those who have acknowledged Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior because he took the punishment for us on the cross of Calvary. Now, yes, all human beings, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. All human beings deserve punishment, but grace and mercy, two sides of the same coin. Grace, let's call grace heads. You have heads and tails on a coin, right? Be a lot of NFL games today to be flipping some coins. See who wins the toss, who gets to receive, and who gets to kick off. Heads, grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor. It means you don't deserve it. He means he blesses you in spite of yourself. Mercy, tails, is not getting what you do deserve. Yes, we all do deserve punishment. We all do deserve judgment. But when we accept God's offer of forgiveness through the shed blood of Christ, the forgiveness of sin and the precious gift of eternal life, then we're no longer deserving of punishment because we accepted the punishment Christ took in our place. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly, not the perfect. The godly are simply those who have chosen to yield to God, to submit their lives to God, to follow Christ. Noah and Lot, of course, being very specific examples of this. Noah being delivered out of the flood, Lot being taken out of the city of Sodom by the angels before it was destroyed. And God doesn't put these in, in examples in the Bible for no reason. They are there for us to take note of, to make note of, and to recognize. And this is Peter's point in this passage. That which he has done in the past, he will do again. In terms of judgment and in terms of deliverance for the righteous. But I want to point out something here. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. The better translation, better word here would be the word trials. Both Noah and Lot were totally engulfed by wicked men and women and their evil deeds. That was a trial for them, a tremendous trial to be surrounded by evil and wickedness and ungodliness. We saw in verse 7 here of 2 Peter 2, righteous Lot who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. This is what Peter is referring to here. God knows how to deliver the godly. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of trials. The kind of trials that Noah and Lot endured. How? How does God deliver the godly? Here I want to read Warren Wiersbe's take on it. Warren says, Peter also points out that God is able to preserve and deliver his true saints as he did with Noah and his family and Lot. Noah, says Wiersbe, is a symbol of the believing Jews who will be preserved through the tribulation. And this has always been an ongoing theological debate between different people in the study of prophecy. Is, that, is Noah an example of the church who will be caught up in the rapture? Because he was lifted up in the ark when the flood came. And then there are others like Warren Wiersbe who say, no, he's an example of those believing Jews during the tribulation. Many Jewish people will come to Christ during the tribulation. The book of Revelation tells us 144,000 Jewish evangelists will be dispatched throughout Israel to preach the gospel. The end result of this 
is that I believe about a third of them will flee to the rock fortress of Petra in Jordan. This would probably be the believing segment of the Jewish populace. But this is one of the main purposes for the tribulation. Not only is it to pour out judgment on an unbelieving world, it's to restore and redeem Israel. To bring in the remnant of Jewish people, of Israelites, who will finally embrace Jesus as their Messiah. So Warren believes Noah represents the, the uh, believing Jews during the tribulation, and that lot stands for the church saints who will be caught away before the destruction begins. Now, any way you slice it, whether both Noah and Lot represent the rapture or Noah represents the tribulation Jews and Lot represents the New Testament church, the point is in both instances when God's wrath was poured out. There's a difference between persecution. We've talked about this so many times. God's people have always been persecuted ever since Cain slew Abel. Persecution comes from men to other men, non-believers against believers. Again, Satan is the prince of this world. He's the motivating power behind the persecution of God's people. He's the source. God does not persecute his own people. He allows them to go through it for their own purification, their strengthening, their edification, in some cases to the point of martyrdom, for his glory. To us, the thought of, even if it's for Christ, most of us try to avoid death as much as possible for as long as possible. And even if it's for Christ, we'd probably prefer not to go there. But from God's point of view, there's no greater glory than laying down your life for him. But again, there's a difference between persecution and wrath. Wrath comes from God on a wicked world. It came with Noah's flood. It came with Sodom and Gomorrah. And it will come again very soon to a planet near you. Wrath is not poured out upon God's people. The Bible says we're not appointed to suffer wrath. Wrath is for an unbelieving, wicked world. We have the examples from the past. God says it's going to happen again. Now, again, let me read the last sentence from Warren Wiersbe. Lot stands for the church saints who will be caught away before the destruction begins. You see, Warren, very intelligent man, believes in a pre-tribulational rapture. That means before the tribulation begins or right at the beginning, we will be taken out of here. Those of us here today would be church saints. We are not believing Jews preparing to go through the tribulation, which they will become believers sometime during the tribulation. We are church saints. So according to Warren, we would be part of the group that is caught away before the destruction begins. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. Of course, Paul, writing here to the Thessalonians, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Notice, Paul's language here indicates that he believes that even he might possibly still be alive when the rapture takes place. What does that tell you? That tells you that Paul and the other apostles, the early church fathers, believed that the rapture of the church was imminent that means it could happen at any moment. See, those who have a post-tribulational belief that they believe we will not be raptured to the end of the tribulation, which means that believers would be here when God's wrath is poured out, their teaching relies upon this idea that there are a number of events, biblical prophecies, that must take place before the rapture can happen. But the teaching of the New Testament writers, the belief of the apostles and the early church fathers was that even in their day, 2,000 years ago, there was nothing that would have to happen before Christ could return. That's the difference. Again, we could have a whole in-depth study, but we don't have time for that today. Okay, so 
The coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Asleep means dead. That's a loving, gentle term for believers who died in Christ. They're not dead, they're just asleep because they awakened in the presence of the Lord. Their bodies sleep in the dust of the earth and at the right time, at the rapture of the church, their physical bodies will be restored, different. A body like Christ has, an eternal body, a body fit for heaven. So he refers to them as those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Notice something else. Now, the Bible tells us that when Christ returns, the second coming, when he comes back to the earth to establish his kingdom Upon the earth, it's called the millennium, the 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth. How many are familiar with that? Good, pretty much everybody. He will set foot on the Mount of Olives on the east side of Jerusalem. The passage we just read, he descends from heaven, but we're caught up to meet him in the air. There is no mention of him descending all the way to the earth and setting foot on the Mount of Olives. That doesn't happen at the rapture. That happens at the second coming. Now, many of us here today are parents. We love our kids, right? Good or bad, we love them. Right or wrong, we love them. Times we have to discipline. Sometimes we should and we don't. That's another story. But we love them. Right? And so, if we saw our kid or kids in imminent danger through no fault of their own, wouldn't we rescue them? In fact, the Bible says he rescues us from the coming wrath. I don't know how you make it much clearer than that. If my little one, when they were little, they're not little anymore, but even if they're, even they're big, they're always your babies, right? They're always your kids. Regardless of how young or how old, if you saw one of them wandering out onto a railroad track or into a street or any place where they could be run over by a train, a car, you name it, you would rush to their aid and pull them out of the way, would you not? And in fact, that's what the word means. We'll be caught up. It's raptus in the Greek, or the Latin Vulgate, rather. The word rapture comes from the Latin Vulgate translation of the Bible, where the word caught up is raptus. It means to be snatched away violently, which is what you would do if your loved one was about to be run over by a car or a train or whatever, right? You wouldn't just, oh, look out, honey. I mean, you'd go flying in there, and you would jerk them out of the way. In fact, some of us have probably been in situations like that where we had to grab them and jerk them out of the way. Now you'll get arrested. There are people who've been arrested for saving other people's lives, but we live in a crazy world. Or as the great Randy Stonehill once sang, it's a great big stupid world, and it's getting stupider all the time. Therefore, verse 18 of 1 Thessalonians 4, comfort one another with these words. These are the words that we're supposed to be using to comfort one another. It's all going to be okay. God is in control, and soon we will see Jesus face to face. We use all these false comforts to make each other feel good, you know, and you've got so many churches now that are doing the feel-good thing. We should be using these words, the promise that then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them. The dead in Christ shall rise first. We shall not precede them. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together. All the New Testament writers, all the apostles, their focus was on eternity. Some people use southern comfort for comfort. 
right? And many other things. And even believers sometimes wallow in wishy-washy, mamby-pamby, false comfort. This is real comfort right here. He is comforting us with the fact that God knows how to protect and to deliver his people. No matter what happens in this world, no matter what is going on all around us, God is still totally in control. And so Peter says he knows how to deliver the godly from trials and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Now, I'm kind of speculating here, but I kind of suspect that most believers have two primary concerns, particularly with regard to trials and testing and so forth. One, I'm the believer speaking now, which I am a believer, by the way. Will I be preserved and protected? The answer is yes. The second question, and this is kind of like when Jesus was walking and talking with Peter. They're having a personal, intimate interaction. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, feed my sheep. Well, the Apostle John was walking at a distance and watching and trying to listen into their conversation. Do you remember that story in the Gospel of John? And so Peter sees that, sees John over there. And the Lord says, Peter, you know, here's what I want you to do. And, and um, Peter says, what about that guy over there? Basically, Jesus said, that's none of your business. You follow me. But sometimes we as believers, we are concerned about our own preservation and protection, which we have tremendous promises from the Lord regarding that. But then the other question would be, well, will the, those who reject God and do their own thing really be punished? I mean, really? Because it sure doesn't look like it. It looks like they're getting all the perks while I'm doing all the suffering. And don't lie to me and tell me that you've never thought that. And with respect to this second point, I remember planning on covering this passage a few weeks ago. Maybe we did, but I'm going to go back over it again. In the book of Malachi 3, beginning in verse 13. The Lord says, Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. And Christians, believers, sometimes do say harsh things towards the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said it is useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts? So now we, we call the proud blessed for those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and go free. I know that there are those of us in this room that have had these very thoughts and perhaps even said it out loud. But then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. So the true believers, the strong believers, the ones who feared the Lord, honored God, respected God, spoke to one another and the Lord listened and heard them. And so a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then, these little words are so important. If, then, then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked. Now, in this life, in this present world, oftentimes it looks like what these grumbling believers were saying. It's useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinance? We call the proud blessed. Those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and go free. We've all seen and heard some of the most horrendous, blasphemous things said by prominent people in our world today, in our own country, in our own culture, our own society, towards God, towards his people, the mockery, and nothing seems to happen to them. That's Peter's whole point here. It's the point in Malachi as well, that don't think because they haven't been dealt with yet that they won't. 
because they most certainly will. Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked. It's a very nuanced thing in this life. We've talked about this before too. Oftentimes you can meet someone and you got this sense, man, I think this person's a believer, right? They have a joy, they have a peace, they have a smile on their face. They, hopefully these things are manifesting in the lives of believers, right? And so sometimes you sense, wow, say, are you by any sense, are you a Christian? Yeah, man, I am, I'm, I love the Lord. But it's very nuanced. You know, sometimes people who don't know God at all can come across as very nice, very friendly, very loving, and maybe they are on a certain level. In fact, that's another part of what we're talking about here. Sometimes Christians can be downright nasty. Sorry to say. And probably all of us in this room at one time or another have been a little nasty. And at that point, somebody would look at you and they would not think, oh my goodness, there's a Christian. Or maybe they would. That's one of those Christians. Right? It's honest. Let's be honest. It's not that easy to tell. Now you go into some of these persecuted nations like China. You go into some of these third world countries where they have nothing to hang on to but God. Sometimes it's a little bit easier to tell who the Christians are. But again, we live in a very nuanced situation here and now. The true revelation, Book of Romans talks about this. The manifestation of the sons of God. We will be revealed. The time will come when, yes, we will be glorified. We will become beings of light. We will look like Jesus and there will be no question about it. Then there will be a dividing. And so for us to get frustrated here and now is foolish. It's wrong. God rebukes the people here in Israel in the book of Malachi your words have been harsh against me. You've said it's useless to serve God. Hey, guys, what's going on? So then those who feared the Lord, the true believers, the ones who were really desiring to follow God, they got together and they talked and said, you know what? We shouldn't have this attitude. God's in control. He knows what's going on. He's going to fix it in his perfect timing. What do we see here from these scriptures? 2 Peter 2 and these other passages. Protection for the righteous is guaranteed. Again, it's an ultimate protection. That doesn't mean that in this life some believers will not suffer. Some believers will be persecuted. But ultimately, the end game is that God promises to protect and deliver us from evil. I think that's in the Lord's Prayer, is it not? I'll tell you what else is guaranteed. Judgment for the wicked is also guaranteed. If God was only capable of judging the wicked but not capable of protecting the righteous, then he wouldn't be God. And by the way, this is difficult. This is a challenge. It's hard for me too. We should not be focused on the wicked, quote, getting their just desserts. Are we all familiar with that term? Oh, I just hope they get their just desserts. No, you don't. Why not? Because you wouldn't want to get your just desserts. I've said this before. We should never be demanding to get what we deserve. I want what I deserve and I want it now. Boom! That's what we deserve. We deserve destruction. We shouldn't be focused on the wicked getting their just desserts. We should instead be focused on their redemption. Right? Thank God I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Know that, you know that song? I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Praise God for our redemption. It means Jesus paid the price for our sins. But he didn't just do it for you and me. He did it for everyone that will receive him. And yet sometimes we Christians get a little greedy and a little selfish, don't we? I'm sure glad I'm saved, but I don't want anybody else to be. They don't deserve it. Neither do you. Neither do I. 
We should instead be focused on their redemption. 2 Peter 3, 9. Later on in the same book that we're studying right now. The Lord is not slack or slow concerning his promise. The promise that Peter is referring to there is the promise to return for us to call his people home. As some count slackness or slowness, God's not slow, he's not slack, he's not dragging his great big feet. But is long-suffering or patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If God had his perfect will, his, his way would be done, not one man, woman, boy, or girl would go to hell. He did not create hell for human beings. He created it for the devil and his angels. Now, if God is not willing that any should perish, that's not his will, that's not his desire, because he created the human race to have a love relationship with him. If he's not willing that any should perish, then we shouldn't be willing that any should perish either, right? Instead of being focused on the wicked getting their just desserts, we should be focused on the redemption, which means we should be praying for them. We should be a witness to them. Luke 6, 27. I say to you who hear, if you're really listening, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. It's not hard to be nice to people who love you, is it? There's an old song, Mutual Admirational Society. We belong to a mutual admirational society. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. I don't know how many of you watched any of the hearings this past week for Judge Kavanaugh. He and his family are devout Catholics. The, I'd say the evidence would be that they are true believers, but he mentioned that during the course of their nighttime prayers, his 10-year-old daughter suggested they pray for the woman who was accusing him of sexually assaulting her. That's a good example of what we're talking about here. Pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. It would be interesting to live that out in real time, wouldn't it? And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. You want your jacket? Give him your shirt. Give to everyone who asks of you. I don't know, this is a rather convicting passage, would you not say? <laughs> and from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, the golden rule, you also do to them likewise. You see, folks, we've been talking a lot about judgment the past few weeks, and it's real, and it is coming. But judgment is God's last resort. you realize that? It's his last resort for those who absolutely will not accept his loving offer of forgiveness and the precious gift of eternal life in Christ. That's why he's not slack, he's not slow, but he is delaying sending Jesus back for us or giving him permission to descend to meet us in the air and then ultimately at the end of the tribulation to come back with us to establish his millennial kingdom. He's been holding off for 2,000 years because he desires to fill the eternal city of the new Jerusalem with his children, people that he loves and that love him. Judgment is his last resort. James 2.13 Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. So if we want to be recipients of God's mercy, we need to be merciful. In other words, not giving people what they deserve. Just as God in his mercy is not giving us what we deserve. The real key statement here for me is mercy triumphs over judgment. Any day of the week, 24-7, God would rather give out mercy than judgment. 
Last time I checked, we're supposed to be like him. Yes? Okay, verse 10, we're going to cover the first half. Especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. And despise authority, but we won't get to that part today. Notice the word especially. Peter makes special note with regards to judgment of those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. Now all unbelievers, and even some believers, walk in the flesh. The Bible says do not walk in the flesh, walk after the Spirit. Don't live a life controlled by your fleshly desires, live a life controlled by the Holy Spirit. But virtually all non-believers walk according to the flesh. But there's a distinction here. In the lust of uncleanness, according to one of my favorite Bible commentators, Charles Ryrie, Charles Ryrie believes Peter must be referring to some type, and I totally agree, it's pretty obvious, I think, he must be referring to some type of sexual perversion. And Ryrie says, likely homosexuality. I know this is politically incorrect and it's unpopular and people get mad. But I think they did that to Jesus too, didn't they? Do you remember Jesus winning any popularity contests? I would hardly call the cross of Calvary a popularity contest. The winner, he would have been the loser. Barabbas was the winner. Likely homosexuality since he has just written about Sodom and Gomorrah. So that's logical. Peter follows his discussion about Lot, Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. Now, you may be already thinking this, but let's go over this. In a general sense, all sin is equal to God because it only takes one sin to make you a sinner, right? How many lies do you have to tell to be a liar? Uno. Por favor. How many times do you have to steal something in order to be a thief? Uno. Don't you love my Spanish? Gracias. Didn't know I was bilingual, did you? I know a little bit of a lot of languages. Enough to get in trouble, I think. It only takes one sin to make you a sinner. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The word sin is, an, is a medieval English archery term meaning to miss the mark. That means you shoot at the apple on your son's head, like William Tell, but you don't hit the apple, you hit your son. You miss the mark. Therefore, on that basis, we are all unqualified in and of ourselves for admittance into God's eternal kingdom. You see, God does not grade on a curve. He doesn't say, well, you're pretty rotten, but he's really rotten, so you get to come in and he doesn't. We're all sinners. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's my first point. So what's the deal with this especially? Okay, second point. God is perfect in all of his ways. Do you agree? And he has created a balanced universe. We've already pointed this out with respect to the fact that he judges the wicked and protects the righteous. That's balance. God is totally balanced. Everything in this universe is held together by the power of God, the spoken word of God, the authority of God, and it's all kept in balance by Him. Just as He's created our physical bodies, the myriad of systems within our bodies is incredible. All the little things that work together. The Bible says we're fearfully and wonderfully made. The Bible's right. God is totally balanced. And when things begin to get imbalanced, that's when we get illnesses, sicknesses, diseases, and eventually die when things become imbalanced. But God always has been and always will be perfectly balanced. Right, wrong, good, bad, righteous, wicked, truth, lies. And when our world was more inclined to believe that, to follow after the truth of God and His Word, the world functioned better. It always will function better when we follow the truth of God's word and when we deviate from it, things begin to fall apart. 
The Bible clearly teaches there will be rewards in heaven based upon our faithfulness here on earth. Some believers will receive many rewards. Others, not so many. Some may not receive any other than the reward of simply being given admittance into God's eternal kingdom. Let me read to you from 1 Corinthians 3.11 through 15. No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's our foundation. The Bible likens our lives unto building a holy building, a holy temple for God, building upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, boy, that's some good materials, is it not? Those are the kinds of things that last, right? Gold, silver, precious stones, but then the next three are not so great. Wood, wood's not as bad as hay or straw, but it's flammable. It can rot. Wood's not as good as precious stones and gold and silver. Wood, hay, and straw, for each one's work will become clear the day, big day, the day of the Lord, when we stand before him. The day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. Gold doesn't burn. Silver doesn't burn. Precious stones don't burn. Wood, hay, and straw will burn. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. The works that we do here on earth are not so that we might be saved. They are done because we are saved. And the genuineness of those works, the right thing for the right reason, the right motivation, the right heart, will be judged when we stand before the Lord. It's called the Bema Seat. It's not the great white throne judgment for the wicked. It's the Bema Seat, the judgment seat of the righteous whose works will be judged and we will be rewarded accordingly. My point is, this is where we get into especially. This is where it all comes together. Wait a minute. On the one hand, all sin is sin. Only takes one sin to make you a sinner. One sin will keep you out of heaven. So what's the big deal? Where does the especially come in? There are different levels of reward in heaven. Based upon what I just read in 1 Corinthians 3, would you agree with that? Can we all agree? Some won't get any, according to Paul. Your only reward is that you get to go in, which isn't bad. I'll take it, right? But at the same time, why not go for more, right? Why not live a life pleasing to God here on earth because we love Him? Not because we're trying to rack up brownie points, because we love him, we fear him, we want to obey him, we want to do the right thing. And then lo and behold, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Here's my point. If there are different levels of rewards in heaven, and there are, then there must also be, and I would say there most certainly are, different levels of punishment in hell. Does that make sense? God's a balanced God, right? Different levels of reward in heaven, different levels of punishment. That's the, where the word especially comes in. Especially those who walk according to the flesh and the lust of uncleanness. We've already learned in previous studies the angelic, the fallen angels, Genesis 6, who cohabitated with human women, produced the Nephilim, were enchained they were put in chains and held under the earth for the day of judgment. Not all fallen angels are in chains, but just the group that came down to earth and violated human women. Only one sin makes you a sinner and keeps you out of heaven, but the Bible does seem to indicate with some consistency and strength, I think, that some sins are more grievous to God than others. A low-level sinner, if you will. Again, there are some really good people that don't follow God. 
that either don't believe him or just don't want to obey him. They want to live their own life their own way, but they're good people. They do good things. They don't go out of their way to harm anyone. Maybe they stay faithful to their spouses. They do a lot of good things. So let's call them a low-level sinner. They're not perfect. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. A low-level sinner would still miss out on heaven by rejecting God and His Son. Well, I'm a good person. If there really is a God and He's a loving God, then I should deserve to go to heaven. No, you shouldn't. Nobody deserves to go to heaven. It's a gift. It's mercy. It's grace. It's forgiveness. It's redemption paid for with the blood of Christ. Nobody deserves it. But all who receive it, who believe it and receive it, will be given the right, according to the first chapter of the Gospel of John, to be called the sons of God, the daughters of God. A low-level sinner would still miss out on heaven by rejecting God and His Son. But he or she, I do not believe, would be punished to the same degree as, for example, a pedophile, somebody who abuses children, a rapist, a murderer, or the way we began this chapter, this is pretty heavy, a false teacher. God takes it very seriously. He puts that up there on the same level as these other things. We can all think of some historical figures. Adolf Hitler would be a classic example of somebody who might get a little higher temperature in the fiery furnace. The horrible things that he and his regime did, especially to the Jews. So again, God promises to preserve and protect and deliver the righteous, those who are His. He also promises, guarantees to judge the wicked and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. And yet what is probably, arguably, the greatest, most heinous, most blatant, most obvious, in-your-face group of sins that we're facing today in our world. Sexual sins of every stripe, every size, shape, and color. It's in our faces 24-7. And according to the Word of God, especially those who walk in the uncleanness, the lust of the flesh, according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. And we're bombarded with it every day to the point that it's now become the new normal. And it's even infiltrating the church. And yet, again, we have the past example of Sodom and Gomorrah. We have the example of the fallen angels of the time of Noah. Interestingly enough, how coincidental that both of these situations involve sexual sin. But it's been so downplayed so twisted, so perverted, and it's happening right in our public schools, folks. So-called sex education. What they're really doing is educating kids on how to be perverts. Do you know that? I'm not exaggerating. If you don't know it, you better get informed. You better find it out. I know we don't have a lot of people here today with elementary and high school age kids. But we have to do something too. We have to pray. We have to get involved. We have to let people know. They're bringing transgendered in to do story time with kindergartners. Did you hear about that? This is another reason why I know that we are at the end of the end. Jesus is coming soon. But rather than looking at people and saying, man, I hope they get their just desserts, we should be praying for them, witnessing to them, sharing what God has given us, not being greedy or stingy with our salvation. Amen? Now, just to wrap it up, having said all this, I'm sure that even the least amount of punishment meted out in the eternal fires of hell will be unbearable. I'm not saying the low-level sinner is going to have it easy. I'm not saying he's going to have an asbestos life wrapped on the lake of fire. You wouldn't want to go to hell no matter what level sinner you were. 
Even the least amount of punishment in hell will be horrendous, and it will be forever. And after the same manner, even the least rewarded believer in God's eternal kingdom will live forever in eternal bliss. Again, we don't work for salvation, but we do serve. And we talked about our servants here in this church today. God bless them. We do serve for eternal rewards. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for the glorious promises of your word that you do promise to preserve, to protect us, to deliver us from evil. And in that day, then the distinction will become clear between the righteous and the unrighteous, those who serve God and those who don't. Not because we're any more deserving, not because we're any more worthy, but simply we have responded to your gracious offer of forgiveness of sin and eternal life through Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you. We can't take any credit for it. You gave us the faith to believe in you and to trust in you. And therefore, we pray for those that are in our lives, our loved ones, our family, our friends, our neighbors, our relatives, co-workers. Lord, maybe we see them as evil and wicked, and they probably are because all human beings have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But Lord, we pray that you would reach them, that you'd touch their hearts, that you'd turn them around, that you would impart to them the gift of faith and the gift of repentance. Help us to love our enemies, to do good to those who persecute us. All the things we read today, Father, the golden rule, to do unto others as we would have them do unto you. Lord, this is how people are one to Christ. And I think sometimes we forget because we are vexed. We are tormented like Lot and like Noah by the evil around us. But we must keep our eyes on you, the author and the finisher of our faith. And we must follow the example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Give us strength, Father. Help us to be godly, loving, Christ-like believers in these last days. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.